All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, it's Manoush, the host of New Tech City. This morning, I wanted to get to work way early, before my kids got up and sucked me into their getting ready for school vortex, before my colleagues got to their desks and sucked me into the WNYC vortex. I needed quiet time to prep this week's show about tech and the tiny businesses that they enable. And with my children and the son still tucked into bed, I decided to treat myself and live the theme of this week's show by booking an early ride with the Uber app. If you've never used Uber, it describes itself as a tech company that's created software that lets anyone request a cab ride via app, text, or the web. Hey, are you Uber? Good morning. Good morning. Um, so I need to go to 160 Varick. And picking me up for his first ride of the day, Juan, a 26-year-old guy originally from the Dominican Republic in an immaculate Honda Accord. Juan's been an Uber driver for about five months. I never taxied before, so I used to own a grocery store before this. So okay. I worked there for three years. Yep. And I just got tired because I was working more than 90 hours a week. Oh, man. So Juan quit his job and decided to become a taxi driver. He got his taxi license and everything. But then he heard about Uber, and he liked the idea of not having to pay a weekly fee to the dispatcher or pay for a radio system. He decided to visit the company's offices to see the technology for himself. You can see, like, on my side of the phone is a heat map, Mm -hmm. and then the heat map works. Every two minutes, it changes, um, like, colors. Mm -hmm. Green means there's a big demand. Passengers ripe for the picking up. Juan says now he works about five days a week between 8 to 10 hours a day. Which is cool. The money isn't as good but it's much better than anything else out there. Normally when you go out there to get a job, you, you're just going to find a, a low salary job, like 8 to $9 an hour. Mm-hmm. Uber deposits Juan's fares in his bank account every Thursday after taking its cut. Do you consider yourself an Uber employee or an Uber contractor? Or, like, what's your status with them, would you say? Well, I think it's an independent driver working with Uber. Um, nowadays, it's, it's, also, it's also good to be independent and not count on someone else. So Juan doesn't have insurance or any other perks of regular employment, but he didn't have that before either. And Juan says the flexibility now gives him more time to think about what else he wants to do. I've actually been thinking of opening up a juice bar. Oh, yeah? And, yeah, and staying um, working for Uber. We arrive in Soho. So what I do now, I end the trip. I have to rate you with stars from a 1 to a 5. So the customer also can rate... You rate me? Yes. You're going to be like, one star, she's too chatty. No, no, I'm I'm actually going to give you five stars. I always give um, five stars to my customers. Okay. And then I get to rate you, right? Yes. Thank you, Juan. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Good thing my credit card gets charged automatically because it turns out that in my hurry to get out of the house, I forgot my wallet. 
So as I alluded to, this week's New Tech City is about the DIY economy. That's what columnist Thomas Friedman called it back in 2009. But he was talking about business people tapping the Internet for cheap services to help their companies do things leaner and faster. We are talking about the new DIY economy, about people using websites like Etsy, Kickstarter, and Uber to create their own jobs, in some cases, mini empires, and competing with big traditional industries in the process. People like my driver, Juan, or your part-time coffee barista who also sells sweaters online, or maybe your neighbor who rents out his apartment through the website Airbnb, like this guy, Colin. It helps me because I get some, you know, supplemental income. I'm able to, honestly, I probably wouldn't even be able to stay in the place that I'm in if I didn't have this income. Colin lives in Brooklyn, and basically he couldn't afford to live there if he didn't rent out his ground floor one bedroom for about 10 to 12 days a month. The rent is too damn high. Too damn high. Too damn high. But in the process, Colin and Airbnb are pissing some people off. So let's use New York as the example. Everyone who lives here knows, yes, the rent is too damn high. It turns out, though, that Colin and his fellow 15,000 Airbnb hosts are breaking the law. New York's attorney general recently asked Airbnb to turn over their names because renting out an apartment for fewer than 30 days without the owner at home is illegal. Airbnb's head of global public policy, David Hantman, says he's seen cities react like this before. So first... They don't know what's going on. Before they figure out how to deal with disruptive companies, government officials usually freak out. Sometimes they get a little bit scared about it because people bring to them the problems. You know, what about taxes? What about safety? What about competition? Whatever it is. The competition in this case is New York's entire hotel industry, an industry that made half a billion dollars in tax revenue for the city last year and contributes to many a politician's campaign. And hotels aren't the only ones being challenged. As the Internet ended the music industry as we knew it, apps like Uber, Sidecar, and Lyft are disrupting the taxi and limo industry. Where Craigslist, eBay, and Amazon changed how we buy stuff, websites like Kickstarter, Lending Club, and Prosper are letting you skip the bank and go to your peers for an investment or loan. Industry after industry is changing. Richard Florida is an economist who thinks a lot about title shifts in the way we work. He's the author who coined the term creative class. One consequence of the recession that's that's both an opportunity but also quite tragic is that people don't have a lot of stable work and that they're turning to entrepreneurial activity and self-employment by necessity. Without long-term jobs, people are driving a car service on the side, selling crafts, doing odd jobs, becoming micro-entrepreneurs. Let's just call it self-employment. Use a really boring term. Okay, self-employment. A recent report said that by 2020, more than 40% of us will be freelancers, contractors, and temporary workers, whatever you want to call it. Now, what about that trendy term, sharing economy? Let's break that one down. Well, we're going through the greatest economic transformation in human history, from an old industrial economy where you owned stuff and where the economy ran because you owned a car, you owned a house, you owned a wash, you know, you owned and owned. Instead of buying a car, now people get a Zipcar membership. Don't buy a bike when you can use a bike share. Why rent an office when you can belong to a co-working space? And this new way of living, sharing, is going to make buying a McMansion on cheap land less attractive. Who wants to drive half an hour to get a gallon of milk? Instead, more of us will be attracted to cities, efficient, sustainable ones. So I see this whole sharing economy as incredibly disruptive, but it's 
taking the last frontier of real inefficiency and waste. Our cities are just wasteful machines, cities and suburbs, and making them run more efficiently. Okay, so let's go back. Before we can get to efficiency, cities have to run the disruption gauntlet. When I think about the life of a city, I think we're disrupting the idea of employment. And uh, what I mean by that is when you work on Etsy, you don't necessarily set up a storefront on the street. You set up a storefront on the web. Chad Dickerson is the CEO of Etsy, the online marketplace for handmade goods. The website sold nearly $900 million worth of those goods last year, 70 percent more than the year before. It's turning into an industry giant itself. And 17,000 sellers in New York City alone can sell things like mason jar light fixtures or earrings shaped like strips of bacon. Etsy is a city hall darling, and it's starting to have more influence. When I think about the way government should think about what they need to do to support micro-entrepreneurship and the types of things that those sellers need, we appreciate the attention, but we need more attention on those people, and those are the customers of Etsy and the members of the community. Those sellers don't show up in some Labor Department reports. Business laws, they vary from state to state, and many of these crafty folks have never had to deal with marketing and customer service before. But they do have less overhead and they pay taxes. Chad Dickerson again. To me, New York is kind of a canary in the coal mine. I think New York will continue to be a leading tech center, but I think the the whole world is becoming tech-oriented. So I think what we're seeing in New York um, will, will start to happen in communities everywhere. The success of many of those crafty businesses led Etsy to recently change its seller policies. There were these stories of people knitting for days at a time, frantically trying to fill orders. They had to comply by Etsy's rules. Now Etsy sellers can get someone else to manufacture and send out those bacon earrings that they designed. And Etsy wants those newly minted small business owners to stay put and grow, not leave because of rigid rules. Etsy changed its policies in part because manufacturing doesn't mean outsourcing to a factory in China anymore. And maybe some of those Etsy folks will start relying on a place like this. Where are we now, Peter? This is the the factory floor. This is Shapeways, a 3D manufacturing company in Queens. And anyone can send in a 3D design or choose one that's already on the website and have it printed out to their specifications with one of the 3D printers here. We can print in stainless steel, we can print in silver, ceramic. A room is filled with a dozen of these machines that look like big ovens, and they slowly lay layer after layer of plastic or porcelain to create a replacement for that teapot handle, for example, or a cup holder for your bike. People make puzzles. People make their own board games. You can make beautiful coffee cups, you can make vases, you can make fruit bowls. Peter Weimarshausen is the CEO of Shapeways, and he moved the company here from the Netherlands. He predicts that more of us will become what he calls product entrepreneurs, i.e. we will sell stuff through 3D printing. I, for example, designed a gorgeous new Tech City ring available for order, I don't know, I think five bucks in plastic, maybe 40 for silver. That if you design something, like for instance the ring you designed, if you feel there is a market for it, you don't even have to test that, you just make it available for sale. And then you see, if you only sell one, well, there's no real harm done. If you sell 100, good for you. And you can actually decide what your uh, markup is based on the manufacturing cost. So if a customer wants my ring, Shapeways will make one and ship it to them. If they want 100 of my rings, Shapeways will make 100 and ship it to them. 
Around 11,000 people have, let's call it a shop, on Shapeways. And since they're selling through the website, they have absolutely no overhead. What you're saying is that Shapeways itself won't necessarily have a ton of jobs available, but it will be a supporter of a new micro-entrepreneurship, that people will create jobs for themselves, essentially. Yep, exactly. As long as people aren't printing out firearms, city officials can't really take issue with companies like Shapeways. And for the companies that they do take issue with, well, eventually they'll get over it. That's what Airbnb's head of global policy, David Hantman, thinks. The real estate rental service wants to meet the city halfway. They want legislation that allows short-term rentals. And in exchange, they'll make sure the city gets its hotel occupancy tax. No more going rogue is a win-win, he thinks. Looking at this innovation and what people are doing to empower themselves, the entrepreneurship, the spending more time with their families, quitting their dead-end jobs, so many things they're doing because of this activity are good for New York, and the economic impact is extraordinary. Airbnb says it also wants to weed out bad actors. Bad actors like my brother's friend, who doesn't actually live in his apartment. He lives in New Jersey, and he just uses the place in Brooklyn to make money. And he ends up driving up the market rate for people who actually need somewhere to live. Okay, enough of those city folk. Let's talk rural entrepreneurship and the original micro-entrepreneur. No, not that, you perv. The farmer. These days, if a hipster isn't starting a tech company, then he or she is literally heading for greener pastures. It's cool to be a farmer, man. Micro-entrepreneur, micro-greens. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be dismissive. You can certainly find me at the farmer's market in Brooklyn on a Sunday, and only half the farm stands are manned by people who look like they just escaped from Williamsburg. The U.S. Agriculture Department is getting in on it, too. They recently announced a new rural micro-entrepreneurship assistance program. But until recently, there wasn't much technology designed specifically for small farmers. Jane Black heads to market for New Tech City. Here's what I see when I go to the Union Square Farmer's Market on a glorious late summer day. Purple carrots and mountains of greens and rainbow displays of cherry tomatoes, otherwise known as dinner. Julia Stellari sees something else entirely. So when we look at a stand like this, we don't actually necessarily see the different varieties of tomatoes. We think of them as all of the different plantings that the farm had to um, put together and create plans for and execute on those plans in order to bring these tomatoes to market. It's not exactly a romantic vision, but then as the co-founder of the software firm Ag Squared, it is Stellari's job to see the invisible side of farming to break down and analyze and simplify the complex business of running a small farm. Stellari started off as a scientist studying pepper breeding at Cornell. It was there that she met Jeff Freuk and Gordon, who was breeding tomatoes. They got to talking and realized... A lot of what we were observing and working with farmers is that farmers didn't have a, um, a really good uh, method of keeping track of what they were doing on their farms. Among many consumers, there's a belief that small, sustainable farms should be low-tech operations. After all, they're supposed to be the antidote to industrial agriculture, where farmers sow thousands of acres of corn or soybeans from the comfort of air-conditioned tractors. That, or install GPS, so the tractors can actually drive themselves. But if small farms are going to be truly sustainable, experts say, they need technology, too. And until recently, there hasn't been much available. We'd go to these farms and they'd show us these marble paper notebooks and they'd shake them at us and they'd say, you know, I have all my records in this notebook and there's nothing I can do with it. Stellar and Gordon's solution? A web-based software program to help small farmers to plan and keep good records. 
Here's how it works. Say a farmer decides he needs to harvest 300 pounds of tomatoes in late September. Ag Squared calculates how many seeds he needs to order, how much space he needs to allocate in the field, and what date the seeds need to go into the ground. The software will also automatically populate a calendar with a daily checklist of when to water, fertilize, and weed each crop. Then, when the tasks are completed... You can say how long you spent working on them. That's labor tracking. Uh, you can say you know, how much fertilizer you ended up putting on the ground, how many seeds you ended up using. That's keeping track of your material costs. So by virtue of having uh, created that plan at the beginning of the season, we make it easy for you to keep good records. Bob Walker is the farm manager at Catch Key Farm in Kinderhook, New York. It offers produce subscriptions to businesses such as NBC, CBS, digital photo company Shutterstock, and WNYC. Each week, the farm sends a refrigerated truck to Manhattan loaded with 440 bright green bags of produce. Tell me what you have in the bag this week. Uh, a couple of heads of lettuce, onions, broccoli rob, a melon, either a cantaloupe or watermelon, tomatillo. No one wants to get the same thing week after week, so Walker grows 60 different crops each summer and harvests between 8 and 12 different fruits and vegetables every week. Walker long ago graduated from a notebook to Excel, but more recently he switched to Ag Squared. Whereas Excel is just numbers and a spreadsheet, the Ag Squared program, it's like using QuickBooks versus an accountant's pad and a pencil. Ag Squared isn't the only new software designed for small farmers. There's a site called Ag Local that connects farmers with restaurants and retailers. Good Eggs, which just launched in Brooklyn, works like a mini Fresh Direct for local growers and artisan producers. But a first step, says Erica Frenet, is to make small farmers better farmers. As the coordinator of Cornell's Northeast Beginning Farm Project, it's her job to help new farmers get started and profitable. Frenet also is a new farmer herself. She raises pigs, chickens, and bees on 26 acres outside of Ithaca. If you don't know how profitable you are, or if you don't know which of your crops are losing money and which are making you the most money, you really can't make decisions that are good for the viability of your farm into the future. There were 300,000 new farms in the United States, according to the latest agricultural census. But you can bet that most of the new farmers didn't decide to go back to the land because they really love accounting or spreadsheets. Still, to succeed, they will need technology to manage the business of farming, just as they need the tractors to tend their fields. That was Jane Black enjoying the warmth of fall and harvest time, and that really got me in the mood to get cozy, eat some soup. You too? Well, before you do, take two seconds to rate us on whatever amazing app you're using, Stitcher, iTunes, or iHeartRadio, or if you're on the WNYC website, please just like us, because I like you. Thanks so much for listening. 